Some people say that science fiction is just fantasy with spaceships. Others would say that fantasy is about plausible, impossible worlds, whereas sci-fi centers on possible, albeit improbable worlds. There's a lot of ways you could understand what sci-fi is and what it does, but let's ask something more important today. Is sci-fi something that Christians actually need? Welcome aboard the Starship Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. On this podcast, we explore the best of Christian-made sci-fi, fantasy, and beyond. We apply the amazing truths and beauties and goodness and otherwise of these stories into the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. And I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven.com and of late also the co-author of a book, nonfiction about fiction called the pop culture parent helping kids engage their world for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell. And if I got to be any character on a starship, it would probably be the chief engineer. So sci-fi has always appealed to me for that reason. And this is episode 52. Do Christians really need sci-fi? It's our third and final part to our Keystone series called Fiction's Chief End. I've been looking forward to this one and the last one that we did about fantasy, including what we would call fantasy, But uh, our last episode, episode 51, was kind of a survey of why Christians not just could use, but really actually need a fantastical imagination, regardless of how that works itself out. Uh, That built off of part one of this series, episode 50, which is about uh, fiction itself. I think we can say based not just on preference or hobby, but on scripture, yes, Christians need fiction. We can even say that we need fantastical imagination leading to fantastical fiction, and that includes genres like science fiction. Yeah, you know, we come into this with a lot of the line, don't we, Stephen? We're, we're both sci-fi geeks, fans, whatever you want to say. And we, we could probably just chat up this whole episode about different fandoms we like, different shows we, you know, we, we hope for more or we groan about things getting canceled. There's just a million things to talk about in this genre, but this is going to be really fun, kind of taking sort of a meta-analysis and, and looking at the genre itself, how it relates to Christianity, how it serves us, and, and how it, it's going to be a, a force for good in the world. Well, even behind the scenes at Lorehaven, uh, we will often talk about you know fantasy versus science fiction, and I find that a little difficult because I enjoy both of them, if you can even say both of them, because in a lot of ways, these genres overlap. You know, you don't often see dragons in science fiction, but sometimes you do. Uh, You don't often see spaceships in fantasy, but sometimes you do. And then, of course, you've got superhero comics or superhero movies that just blend every single genre. Horror, paranormal, science fiction, space opera, fantasy, everything is just a fantastic hodgepodge so it, it's difficult to kind of say even genre, like it, it's kind of all one genre that we call fantastical fiction imagination. Like even if you think about uh, Star Trek, I mean, we'll, we'll, we're both uh, Star Trek fans. Uh, Star Trek, yes, you could call it science fiction, but there's a lot of fantasy in Star Trek, and particularly in uh, some of the stories that follow uh, kind of a fantasy hero's journey and such. Uh, this is uh, not something that you can just you know sort so easily on one side of the bookshelf or the other. 
Yeah, well, it, Star Wars is is my go-to sci-fi fandom. And of course, it's full of fantasy because you've got the Force, you've got magic in it, and it's literally about spaceships and, you know, wizards. And so, man, my entire life is so full of sci-fi. It's really hard to imagine life without it. It's what uh, drove me to want to be an engineering major in college. It, it's always just made me curious about the world. But I've also seen how God has used sci-fi uh, for my good in my life. And, you know, going back to even Star Wars, Star Wars is all about this galaxy far, far away. And while there's trouble there, there is victory for the good guys. And there, there's triumph over evil. And there's even a subverting of evil and turning people back from the dark side. You know, to quote Hebrews eleven sixteen, sort of out of context, that really gave me a hunger for a better country that is a heavenly one. Uh, then fast forward to my college years. That's when I saw The Matrix that came out. That was a huge uh, film for me. I, I've seen that a million times. And it, it showed me at a very young point in my Christian walk. I was a very young Christian when I saw that, that God is more powerful than the simulated reality that our our world system, you know, the, the sinful system of the world tries to enslave us with. And it really gave me a clear picture of what spiritual warfare was all about. So again, it's just hard to think through a lot of things that I understand w without thinking of sci-fi references. Well, same here. And I, I realized that growing up, uh, although I, I didn't start like many of our listeners would have with a franchise with the word star in it as my first exposure to science fiction or in the case of Star Wars, space opera. Uh, instead, I took the road less traveled. Uh, it was the Bible anime series that I've mentioned on the podcast before called Superbook. Uh, and then kind of a kind of a spinoff, although not set in the same universe, called The Flying House, both of which feature time travel uh, in which uh, people travel back in time to either the Old Testament or the New Testament and are kind of adjunct to those narratives. And the, the Superbook series in particular, the first one was more fantasy. It was just a magic book. Uh, I, I don't think they use the word magic, but uh, just sent them back in time to experience Bible stories just because. And then the sequel series set in the same world kind of revisited a lot of those same uh, narratives, although instead of taking one episode for a Bible story, they would take, you know, three or four. They'd actually string it out into kind of these uh, these uh, arcs. And there was more of a plot there. And there was also a robot with a computer that could teleport you. And I just remember this goosebumps seeing this scene where you discovered that this robot had this power to push some buttons on his little personal computer, which of course is groundbreaking technology in the 1980s. <laughs> and then you would just light up and the stripes would flow across you and you would just vanish to another location in the biblical space time. And I still get chills just thinking about that. Whoa, what if that could happen? You know, and in the one sense it's magic, you know, there's the famous Arthur C. Clarke quote about uh, any technology that uh, isn't explained is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, that's definitely a paraphrase there. But that, that's where, okay, so what do you call it? Science fiction or fantasy? Really, to classify those genres, I, I often think of the two big star franchises. You know, you mentioned mm -hmm. Star Wars. It's set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, is that in our universe or is it a completely different existence? Uh, in that case, I think it is closer to the fantasy end of the spectrum. But something like uh, Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, I mean, uh, or the expanse uh, that is set in a, a long time in our future in a galaxy very close to home, our galaxy, 
Uh, that's definitely more likely harder science fiction, uh, whereas a galaxy far, far away is probably more likely fantasy. So I guess we'll focus more on, uh, more on the galaxy close to home uh, as we're talking about science fiction, in which case we're talking about a potential future or alternate histori- historical future for the human race. Uh, there may or may not be aliens. There's probably technology, whether or not you uh, explain that a lot. It may just be a box over in the corner. You point to that box and you say, that box does this, even if you don't know exactly how. But the general idea of the box is to explain some kind of science fiction principle so that at least you, the fan or the reader, get the idea that this could actually happen. This is the thing that gets stuff done. And Star Trek, I believe that is called, there's a, there's a box like that for the transporter beam, another famous teleportation device. Uh, and it uh, resolves the Heisenberg uncertainty principle which is the idea that you couldn't just break someone down into energy and transfer them to another location and reassemble them dependably. The, the uncertainty principle gets in the way. So they have to invent a Heisenberg compensator. And the rumor I read is that uh, someone asked, hey, how does that Heisenberg compensator work? Eh, eh, eh. And uh, the guy on set or the guy who wrote it said, it works very well, thank you. <laughs> and that's the idea of science fiction. You don't know exactly how it works, but it works very well. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the key definition of sci-fi is that it's a possibility. It, it, it may be outlandish. It may never happen. But, you know, on paper, with doing the math, okay, it's possible. And I think that's what draws me to it so much. I, I, um, so if you take the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. And the joke is that it stands for Everyday New Fantastic Possibilities. <laughs> that's exactly my personality. I love thinking of Oh, what could happen if, you know, it's like you said, what, what could happen if we had a robot that could do this? And uh, I, I'm very future oriented, too. I, I think about where things are headed and what could be possible or more possible in the future. Naomi is my complete opposite. She, she likes to think about the past. She loves history. She likes to understand how we got to where we are. And so in our house, we've got one wall of pictures that she hung up. That's all of our ancestors going back to great, great grandparents, uh, mine that immigrated here from um, Austria, Germany in the 1890s. And her, she, she has relatives that go back to the Mayflower, believe it or not. Uh, but then on another wall, I've got these printouts of exoplanets because I think, oh, what if we could go there? What, what if we could set up a space station? You know, what if we could get a faster than light spaceship? And I, again, are these things probable? Probably not, but they're possible. And so that's why sci-fi just personally really appeals to me. I think that they are probable, though, if you expand your scope of probability beyond mm. humans just doing stuff on their own. I think all those planets are out there, as we've explored in previous episodes. All those planets are out there for a reason. And it's perfectly fine if we just want to stay on Earth or in our own solar system and look at them from a very long distance. But expand the scope outward to eternity, and you think that each one of those planets might actually have human colonies on it someday. Uh, for the glory of Christ, our King, uh, ruling the redeemed universe from the uh, capital planet of New Earth. That could certainly give a different definition to the Amazing Grace line that says, when we've been there 10,000 years on Alpha Centauri, perhaps. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> to give a quick summary to you, our listener, where we're going to head today, we're going to talk about how sci-fi is a shared universe that's inhabited by common grace. Sci-fi explores the genius and madness of humanity, which reveals our need for God. And thirdly, the church, therefore, should 
terraform the strange worlds of sci-fi for God's glory. We've been using that word terraform a lot. And uh, it very, very, very properly applies here. Terraforming, of course, understood as the hopefully healthy transformation of a dead, barren, or otherwise inhospitable planet to be able to host a human life outdoors, walking around, breathing something like oxygen uh, without a need for protective gear or domes or things like that. Zach, as we move into this treacherous territory, we, we actually have a, uh, some concession stand items, uh, do we not? Uh, it's been a bit chilly across America uh, this weekend, so uh, maybe need some piping hot cocoa or something to warm me up before we head into this chilly, uh, chilly zone. Well, I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that by design, sci-fi takes us to worlds beyond our comfort zones, like way beyond. <laughs> and not just, you know, physically beyond, but just maybe even emotionally, psychologically, theologically beyond what we're comfortable with. So a great example of this is Ray Bradbury's short story called The Man. Now, this is kind of an obscure reference, but what it centers on is space explorers who discover civilizations that were visited by Jesus. Another classic short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Star, it envisions that the real cause of the Bethlehem star that the wise men saw was actually a, a supernova that wiped out a whole other civilization. These kind of stories, maybe you're the kind of person that says, oh, that's interesting. I want to read more about it. Or you might be the kind of person that says, ah, that's kind of heretical. I don't, I don't know about that. And, you know, these are the classic examples. There's, of course, a lot more sci-fi that's come out since then, and it takes bigger risks, and its worldview, and its theology. And so, yeah, we just want to acknowledge that these are stories that, that go beyond what we think is true or even possible or, or likely. And there are a lot of perils that come with that. If you're not careful, you can approach the event horizon of humanism or fall into the black hole of atheism and nihilism or the, you know, the kilonova of materialism and utopianism and, and lots of other unbiblical isms that are so tied to sci-fi. It, it's like a, it's a feature. It's not a bug, as they say. It's the sci-fi so often pushes uh, very clearly a lot of ideas that the Christians don't find, you know, agreeable. And, and that's why um, this article I found on Christianity Today, James A. Herrick says, quote, the genre draws us to its own views of redemption. Carl Sagan recognized the grip that the future, space, and the extraterrestrial hold on the post-Christian Western imagination. Spiritual seekers, then, get some answers and a taste of transcendence without the moral accountability or costly interpersonal commitments of church, end quote. So you can see how, to a lot of people, sci-fi comes across almost like a competing religion. You know, we talked in the last episode about, you know, don't buy into silly myths or endless genealogies that teach false doctrine. And so while imagination and fiction is not a problem, we do recognize that fantastical stories can teach false views. And so Christians are right to be on guard against those views, but we have to sort of separate those from the genre itself. And here, here's another example of this. Star Trek, you know, the one we, we all are familiar with, the one that you and I share probably the most. I've often said beyond the transporters and the Heisenberg compensators, the most fantastical element is really that it's totally devoid of human religion. 
there are no churches on the Starship Enterprise. They, there's no um, traditional religions, I should say. You, you don't see Judaism, Christianity, Islam, others represented. You, you don't really hear the gospel at all. Uh, when, when you see religion, it's often very alien and, or, or it's um, more like folk religion. I totally recognize that sci-fi, it seems to be opposed to Christianity. And we're going to explore that today head on and show that that doesn't have to be the case. Well, some stories do have overtly anti-Christian or even atheistic ideas. You know, there's, it's almost the analog to the hazards of fantasy. Some people will use fantasy as a means to uh, explore worlds or magic or ideas that are contradictory to uh, the biblical gospel. The fantasy has been for people a gateway drug to the occult. Doesn't mean the fantasy is at fault. The person's heart is at fault. But science fiction has been a gateway towards other evils atheism, nihilism, or nihilism, however you pronounce that, uh, agnosticism, or just that tendency of trying to explain everything supernatural using some kind of science sounding jargon. Actually, on uh, Monday, February 15th, we published an article at Lorehaven, uh, L.G. McCary's next article about uh, reading uh, books with bad ideas that can still help us grow. As she mentions, the Ayn Rand novel Anthem uh, and uh, Ted Shang's short story, Umph, um, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Umphalos, uh, which uh, she says is a story told by an archaeologist in an alternate universe that has direct archaeological evidence for young earth creationism, such as mummies without belly buttons. And <laughs> stories like that, you know, they can kind of challenge us for sure. And if you are not on your game with Christian apologetics or the idea of where the Bible came from, or some of the basic uh, biblical answers about the problem of evil and how you define good versus evil and all of that. Uh, science fiction can be treacherous territory. Some of us need to build on a few extra layers for our pressure suit as we head into these possibly hostile alien worlds. Uh, others of us, of course, uh, may be a little bit more used to those worlds and uh, might be able to go in uh, holding our breath a little bit longer. Uh, to preserve that terraforming metaphor. So just practice some caution as you're wandering into these uh, cold wastelands of science fiction. Uh, sometimes the radiation of outer space can kill you. There are hazards here. And even as we give a lot of references to sci-fi phantoms that we're familiar with, that you may be familiar with, listener, you know, we, we sort of have to hold those in tension and talk more so about the genre itself and, and what it is. You know, what is the point of it? What is the, the good of it? I think it comes by just simply looking at the name science fiction, you know, and we're not talking about, first of all, big science, capital S, the science trademark. We're just talking about science, which is a tool that God gives us. And so that that's our first point here is that sci-fi is a shared universe inhabited by common grace. So here is a really great uh, summary of what science fiction is. Uh, this is by Charlie Jane Anders, who is the author and former managing editor of io9 says quote we're living in a science fictional era thanks to all the incredible technological and scientific discoveries we've made in some sense science fiction has come true this means science fiction is uniquely qualified to comment on the era we're living in and is the only pop culture that accurately reflects the world around us science fiction is for anybody who wants to imagine how the world will be or could be different, end quote. So this is a great idea here, that science fiction belongs to everyone. It, it's not a fringe genre. If you look at the top grossing films and books, there's tons of sci-fi in them. And I really like this idea that it's for anybody. It, it's, it's not just for the, the hardcore geeks or whatever. 
you know, even though we're quoting Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and, um, and, you know, others, you don't have to know the, you know, the golden era or the masters or whatever of sci-fi because it's about the future. And, and to quote John Connor from Terminator, there's no fate, but what we make for ourselves. And it's not always just a pure genre. It, it's a flavor or it's an ingredient of other stories. A great example of this is my kids love the Netflix animated series, uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Now, you know, if you're familiar with the show, it's about kind of chasing down criminals and solving mysteries and whatnot, but it, there's so many sci-fi elements in that, just like a lot of superhero hero films where maybe that's not the focus, the sci-fi ideas, but you know, you, you couldn't remove that element without unraveling the entire story. So sci-fi is, it's everywhere and it's for everyone. That's the Carmen San Diego show that I cannot watch because I grew up with the video games in the late 80s and oh, yeah. 90s, and she is a villain. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. No, no anti-hero, no hero stuff. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a villain. She steals the Eiffel Tower. She steals the planet Saturn. Uh, this is the type of things that uh, Carmen San Diego inexplicably ought to be able to do. And yeah, I was mentioned even in the superhero series, uh, sci-fi is a tone that uh, is all over uh, that stuff, uh, not just a genre unto itself, which is why it's sometimes so difficult uh, to pin it down. Zach, you mentioned that uh, science is a tool, and uh, we often hear of the science uh, spoken as if it's an assembled collection of all of the world's wisdom pointing in a single direction in order to prove some belief or some practice we're all supposed to do. Not so. Science is supposed to be about debate and theories and throwing out old paradigms and things like that. Science, I actually have a t-shirt says God created science. I like that <laughs> because he did. It is part of that oft repeated on this podcast, cultural mandate that God gave to the first humans mentioned in Genesis one twenty eight. doing science is a natural part of that command that God gave to go out, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, steward the resources. Adam would have been the first scientist. Eve would have been the first scientist with him. They initially did science agriculture. That is a science. They did zoology, counting uh, or naming uh, the animals in the Garden of Eden. Like that, that is the early beginnings of science. They would have had to make tools as even after they were thrown out of paradise, going out into the world. There are arguably scientific empires that were lost to human history at the flood. Lest this seem like some kind of crackpot alternate history to you, we're just coming at it the way that the Bible does. And I think a biblical worldview must include the development of science initially for God's glory. And now it should be used for God's glory. And often God is glorified through scientific achievement. But of course, there are plenty of idols mixed up in there. So science fiction, which includes science, has a lot of that common grace that you mentioned, Zach, and then also a lot of idols mixed in there. Uh, it takes a biblical discernment to disentangle them. Yeah, and just looking at the whole way that science comes about through through reason, through intelligence, through knowledge, through research, those human abilities are from God. You know, we are made in God's image. It's not like these abilities came out of nowhere or they exist on their own. They are part of what it means to be human, and and that means that we are made by God. And so He intended us to have these skills and these abilities. I love that line in uh, Prince of Egypt where, where Moses is complaining uh, about, well, I, you know, don't send me. And then just the voice of God just slams into him and says, who made man's mouth? The abilities that we have are from him. And therefore, the, the tools that we create are, 
uh, part of the, the common grace that he's given us. A great example of this is in Exodus 31. So this is, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is the story of Bezalel. And it says uh, in verse three, I filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, bronze, cut gemstones for mounting, to carve wood for work in every craft. God intended the skills, the abilities, the tools, the craftsmanship, even the materials that we use. These are, again, not accidents. These are, these are the things that he intended. So tools, science, it, this is all God's idea. Maybe it doesn't always go in the way that God would want us to use things, but it's not something that's you know escaped his purposes or his plans. When we look at all of the innovations that we are living in that were just a few decades ago, just total science fiction dreams, this is God's common grace. It's like rain on the good and the wicked that we are living in a era of this it's sort of like his feedback loop that science fiction predicts the future and then people go create it. And then that inspires more stories that inspire more innovations. And so it's this really interesting acceleration that's happening. Yeah. You have a real world effect more so from science fiction on the development of actual human technology than you would have from fantasy. Fantasy tends to bring more fantasy, whereas science fiction tends to bring more science fiction as well as actual science, because we are not divided persons who split our science from our enjoyment of art and creativity. We are whole persons, and God has given us the gift of doing both of these at the same time. In science, you have art and technology, you know, the math and the pictures, the imagination and the logic all swirling together. I love the Bezalel account in Exodus uh, because uh, Bezalel almost sounds like a dark lord or maybe a Frank Peretti <laughs> demon name or even a planet off somewhere. Set a course for planet uh, Bezalel 2. Like, no, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, the first person, I think last I checked, the first person in scripture about whom it is said, I have filled him with my spirit. The first person in the Bible, last I checked, who is uh, described as being influenced in some way by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit was a craftsperson, was someone who used science and creativity to make these amazing textiles and instruments and tools and gold and bronze items uh, for the direct glory of God in the tabernacle, the architectural wonder commissioned by God himself, giving instructions from Mount Sinai in the thunderclouds to Moses about the types of art and architecture that God wanted. So there is God uh, endorsing uh, this scientific and artistic project to glorify himself amidst, of course, all of the idolatry that people use art and science for. I mean, you know, Moses comes down from the mountain and then they are using their uh, knowledge of how to do this in order to make a golden calf and worship it. So, yes, there's idols here, but then you also get this moment in scripture where uh, God is pointing to the original purpose of science. And yet even now, as you mentioned, we have this amazing real-life technology inspired directly by science fiction, uh, which is just awesome. I remember the story about uh, the person who invented the very file format that you're listening to right now on this podcast. So this is super meta. I will include the link in the show notes that summarizes these developments from science fiction. This is from a Forbes article. It says, Quote, Martin Cooper can recall the moment when he was at a break in his lab watching the episode of Star Trek when Kirk used his communicator to call for help for an injured Spock, which later inspired him, presumably Martin Cooper, not Captain Kirk, to invent the mobile phone. 
the inventor of the MP3, that is, Carl Heinz Brandenburg, can look back to the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Data is playing music from his computer and he conceived of the idea of the digital music file. That's the MP3. Cutting in real quick. Resuming quote, the series Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager pioneered the graphic art of the Okudagram, named after scenic art supervisor Michael Okuda. The GUI interface of the LCAR's operating system, later used in the PAD, personal access display device, the handheld computer interface that foresaw the design and touch functionality of Apple's iPad and iPad Mini. Science fiction has always been the genesis of our greatest technological triumphs. The idea for land ironclads, first written about by H.G. Wells, were adapted by Winston Churchill into the first tank in military history. The idea of military aeroplanes was first written about by A.A. A. Milne of Winnie the Pooh fame. The concept mm-hmm. of atomic bombs is another idea that was first generated by H.G. Wells. End quote. There is more in that article. I might also add, of course, the idea for submersible craft uh, was popularized by Jules Verne uh, to such an extent that you later got an actual submarine named the Nautilus. I think that was in the U.S. Huh. Navy. And of course, uh, famously, there is a, I think it was a prototype uh, space shuttle uh, by NASA that was called the Enterprise. If I remember correctly, it didn't actually fly, but uh, I think it is still on display. Yeah, I've actually seen it at the uh, Udva, the Air and Space Museum, uh, the Udvazi, however you say it. That's in, the one. Uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's really cool to see that. And it's, Stephen, that's so cool to hear the story of the MP3 and how Star Trek literally inspired that. And now that's how we're talking and we're listening. I remember in, it's, it's called Fish Camp. This is the uh, orientation sort of retreat for Texas A&M where I went to college. And I was on the bus going there and just meeting people around me. And this, this guy sits next to me and he goes, do you know what MP3s are? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so he goes on to explain them. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like all I have are CDs. And I thought those were cool. Like this is so much cooler. And again, this is in 98, like years before the iPod came out. And uh, this is even before Napster and things like that came out. But um our dorm had this sort of uh, informal file sharing system that a lot of people shared MP3s and yes, they were pirated or whatever, but it's just amazing to think how that came about in our lifetime because of science fiction that preceded it. But if, uh, if science fiction points us to human innovation, human creation, the other thing it does, maybe not as explicitly, is it points us to God's creation, to God's imagination and his wonderful works. So I, I think about Carl Sagan a lot and in sort of his successor, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, they have the show called literally Cosmos and it gets us to wonder at the galaxy, at the universe, at the earth, at our solar system. And even though Sagan and Tyson, you know, deny a creator, the cosmos, you, you still can't help but seeing God's fingerprints over everything that these non-believer scientists are pointing out. And that's because in Psalm uh, 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. You know, you can't not hear the voice of God when you look at creation. And, And and just on a personal note, when I first came to know the Lord, it was on a night when I went, so this was at a young life camp in high school I've mentioned before. And 
uh, they walked us through Romans three and then later Romans six and sort of in that in-between time when we heard sort of the bad news of the gospel before the good news, I went out and just looked at the stars. Uh, it was a really clear night in, in Colorado and the, the Rocky mountains. And so, man, the stars are just overwhelming that night. And, um, it, again, it was that, that speech that was pouring forth. It, it was, it was God's glory. And that's when I was really convinced, like, wow, I, even though I think I'm this good kid, I am nothing compared to the goodness of God. So I, I embrace sci-fi for this reason, <laughs> that it gets us to look at creation. And I think when we do, we hear the voice of God. Some other examples of this that are just great are in Job 38, where God says to Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? You know, he's saying, look at all these things I've made. Like, you, you don't have a thing on me. All your inventions and all your hubris, like, can you do anything about these star systems that I've created? Uh, in Psalm 8, it says, um, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind? Now, if you just stop right there, that's where Sagan would stop. What is man? We're just a speck on a speck on a pale blue dot. We don't matter. We're insignificant. There's a million other civilizations out there. We're just one of them. But that's not where the psalmist stops. It says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? So I love this idea that God is so majestic in his creation and science fiction points us to that. And while science fiction will sometimes end and say, oh, we're just kind of nothing compared to this universe, I really think God enters the picture when we look at his creation and he reminds us, yes, I'm huge and, and glorious, but I'm also attendant to the needs of man. I care about people. Yeah, I actually naturally resist kind of that fake drama of, whoa, the universe is so big. Whoa, there's so many stars. Whoa, you are made of stardust. Whoa, it's so epic <laughs> and you're comparatively nothing. And you can just sit there and just wallow in the whoa. Yeah, man, that's so deep, man. You know, like you're sitting around smoking something and like that, that is a high that is not sustainable and ultimately will not fulfill what that feeling is supposed to point you to. Uh, the only thing that you can properly do in response to the bigness of the universe and the wonders of creation is to find the creator. That's what's going to satisfy ultimately, not just sitting there thinking about how dramatic it all is. Uh, that is a hollow drama. It is drama for its own sake. Uh, it will not last and it certainly isn't going to do anything for the eternal life uh, to which you are destined. Yeah. You know, that sense of woe that has, is propagated by sci-fi, it, it certainly does open the door for a specific thought to come in, right? It, it, it opens us emotionally to more intellectual thoughts. And, and as we were saying in our concession stand, that's where a lot of garbage gets packed in with, with really good stories with really good characters. Sometimes there's ideas that creep in that aren't so great. And that is definitely a part of, again, it's a feature, not a bug of science fiction that it, it not only stretches our imagination to uh, imagine other worlds and, and other frontiers, but also in the realm of knowledge and, and philosophy, it really gets us to engage uh, certain ideas and and that can be good. Here's a quote from Seth Shostak. He's the director of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And he says, quote, 
The thing with science fiction that's different than other genres is that it's always about the idea. The idea in science fiction is the real leading man or leading lady. And I like that because I'm a big fan of ideas. You always learn from ideas, even the crazy ones, end quote. And then obviously he's, you know, pursuing a, a crazy idea for his own life, searching for alien technology, alien communication. And, and that is something that science fiction sort of gives that permission to of, hey, what about this? Or what if this? And we'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but those, the fact that it focuses on ideas is really fertile ground uh, for the Christian imagination and for the gospel. So we'll, we'll see about that here in our second point, our second section, which is how sci-fi explores the genius and the madness of humanity. And this will eventually reveal our need for God. Here's a Christian sci-fi author, Carrie Neitz, who says, quote, science and technology belong to Christians as much as anyone. So why not the fiction that delves into their uses and effects? So what I love about sci-fi is that it gets us to look at the effects of things. So it, it's not simply, here's all this cool technology, look at all this. But it, it really gets us to look at man's attachment to technology, man's use of technology, the ethical considerations, the moral uh, considerations. So it's always this commentary on human nature. Uh, Ray Bradbury famously said, I write sci-fi to prevent the future, <laughs> not to predict the future. This is the uh, author of Fahrenheit 451 saying this. Michael Crichton, if you look at a lot of his books, they're... Uh, they're described as all the ways that groups of scientists could do great things, but also great evil. <laughs> in just case in point, in Jurassic Park, they make dinosaurs. And those are awesome. Oh, except for when they eat people. And the philosopher Ian Malcolm, you know, Jeff Goldblum's character famously says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And that, I think is huge feature of science fiction is that it gets us to think about what we should be doing, not simply what we could do. And I think anytime we stop and think about that, you know, cause our, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're in this acceleration feedback loop of knowledge and innovation and technology, you know, just ramping up. And every time that we can stop and think about, Hey, where are we going? What, what is the future that we're creating? Is this a good future? We're, we're making for ourselves for our, and for our children. Uh, science fiction sort of pumps the brakes, believe it or not. It, it doesn't always just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep inventing and keep creating all these things. It gets us to really think about what it is we're doing. A famous example of this too. And in the real world was, uh, the scientist Oppenheimer, one of the fathers of the A-bomb who said, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You know, so he, he very much understood that <laughs> science doesn't always lead to good things. It can lead to destruction. And so we have to pay very careful attention to the ideas that we are absorbing about the world, about humanity, about the future that we're creating. Amen. The best science fiction I've read or watched captures the duality very well. Whereas the worst science fiction or just the boringest science fiction gets all enamored with the technology and maybe even the hazards of the technology, but sidelines the human characters. Uh, the author may come from a technical background, maybe he's a very logical Vulcan sort, 
And that that's a gift that's I'm not trying to dismiss that. But because fiction is primarily about people, if you lose the people in pursuit of the ideas or the amazing uh, speculation about the technology, then I personally cannot get into the fiction. And I will name a name here. The first one or two seasons of Star Trek, the next generation actually fall into this trap more often than not. Uh, the human stories are just not there, not like they are in the later seasons or the midpoint of Star Trek's The Next Generation. And that actually is partly the fault of Gene Roddenberry, uh, who in a, a series uh, Bible or the guidelines that he had for TNG starting out, uh, he didn't want interpersonal drama between the crew members. He did not want uh, a whole lot of stories about them having a personal conflict with each other. Why? Because it's the future. It's a utopia. Humanity has evolved beyond all that sort of thing. They can fall in and out of relationships uh, involving close personal intimacy, uh, and they're just going to be distant from each other. They're working professionals. They are scientists, and the technology is amazing, and he didn't want them to have you know, any of this kind of trifling human drama, which is absurd on its face, <laughs> but especially absurd if all you're doing is bringing in some inferior alien species to show by comparison how awesome the humans are. You have a ship full of Mary Sues at that point. There is no one you can actually enjoy. And if they had stayed at that point, uh, then TNG would not be as famous as it is. But fortunately, I think warmer hearts prevailed in the writing department and began to realize, wait a minute, you know, the most interesting thing about data is not that he can do all these calculations, is that he has all these abilities and yet he wants to be human. Yeah, he's Pinocchio. Oh, yes, exactly. And, and you know, Picard has flaws. You know, he's, he's kind of the logical captain, you know, Mr. Diplomacy, but he, he's also very flawed. You know, he never had a family. You know, what if he did? The most, one of the most famous Picard episodes now is that episode, I, I, the name escapes me at the very moment, uh, where he is uh, telepathically linked uh, with a space probe type device that they cannot break the connection. And he experiences an entire lifetime uh, as this scientist with a family on this other world. And it's, it's about the science, it's about the high concept, you know, of this world that vanished. And then they sent out this, uh, this memorial to remind anyone who finds it of who they were. But it's also about just this beautiful picture of a simple man on a world that vanished a long time ago, just living a normal life with his family, you know, loving the same woman the rest of his life, growing old together, losing people, death and life and memory. It's just beautiful. And that's the one that ends with him playing, you know, the very instrument that he used in this other life, which uh, happened to be actually attached to this alien probe. And everyone loves that episode. They love it not because the technology, they love it because it's an amazing Picard story. Mm -hmm. uh, another example, though, of, of, of this done poorly. Um, I've actually stopped reading some science fiction uh, because it's obvious the author was all about the technology. And I, I don't remember the characters' names. I don't remember anything interesting about them. And yes, I'm looking at you, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, author of the Mars trilogy <laughs> of books. I made it through the end of Red Mars. I never got to Green Mars or Blue Mars. Talk about terraforming. Uh, he was all about the terraforming, and I don't remember the people at all. I remember a lot of speculation about exactly how high uh, the space elevator would go and what would happen if people knocked it out of orbit. Just how would it slingshot down to the planet's surface? Where would it hit? At what strength would it hit? Uh, you know, what would be the, uh, the, the results of that kind of natural disaster? Uh, how much dust and how much is going to interfere with the weather when it lands? You know, how, much is it, how many people is it going to kill? 
I remember that being very impressive, but I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. So it's not as interesting to me. I'm interested in the people. And that's your in to science fiction. The good science fiction is not appealing to folks with the colloquial left brain. It's going to appeal to folks who have both left brain and right brain. We want to talk about human nature. We want to explore ourselves, not just the stuff that we make and not just the ideas associated with the stuff that we make. Yeah, I will join you in, in sort of the um, disconnect that I feel with Kim Stanley Robinson. I, I loved his book, Seven Eves, and I also found a lot of it forgettable. It, it was extremely vivid in him picturing this near-Earth orbit uh, space station, this massive, like, it, it's like way beyond the ISS. And I can, I can picture just so many details of that, but I can't really remember any of the people in it. And so, yeah, when, when the focus is just on the technology, it's just not, it doesn't really do anything for me either. And, and I, I love that Star Trek episode, Stephen, you mentioned the, it's called the, the inner light. I had to look it up. That's the one. Yes. I've watched that many, many, many times. And honestly, I think that that story gave me a lot of positive ideas and role models, you could say for marriage. Uh, it, it's given me a lot of my own aspirations of where, you know, I, I want to uh, live a long life with Naomi and, and we, you know, die at an old age together. And, it, and you know, we, we're just fussing about where we put our shoes or whatever it was in the, the episode. So, uh, but you mentioned a really good word earlier, Stephen, which is duality. That science fiction can uh, really hone in on the, the duality of all of this, that humans can create great things, but, but also uh, a lot of dangers can result from that. So I, I think that sci-fi can work like in a reverse inspirational story, <laughs> uh, sort of a cautionary tale, if you will. The first novel to be considered science fiction is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It was this idea of humanity playing God by creating man. And that didn't work out really so well. And then classic books like Fahrenheit 451, which we've mentioned, and Brave New World, you know, those show us a, the disaster that follows when Christianity is abolished. Literally, when you abolish religion, abolish Bibles and reading, that you're abolishing part of our soul and that the vacuum gets filled by this really insane kind of worship of state and authoritarianism. So uh, those are great stories to show where not just the technology, but human progress, how that can lead to terrible, terrible things. And it goes back to the Bradbury quote about I'm, I'm trying not to predict the future, but to prevent, you know, a certain future. Of course, the Terminator series is a great, another great example of this. And, but more than that, more than just, you know, the war fighting domain, it makes us look at the trust that we place in technology. You know, are we giving too much of ourselves to the things we create? And as much as I'd love a robot assistant, you know, I wouldn't want that robot assistant to kill everyone. And then the last example I, I thought about was War of the Worlds. And I, I am thinking about the Steven Spielberg version with Tom Cruise. I know a lot of people dump on Tom Cruise, whatever, but I like Tom Cruise movies. I'm just going to say it. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I think the main reason is he doesn't have to do bad movies. I'm looking at you, Nicolas Cage, I guess, but Tom Cruise picks pretty good movies to be in. And they're, they're fun. But the thing about War of the Worlds that the one that he's in that I love is that it shows us this unbeatable foe that with all of humanity's fighter jets and tanks and nukes and all these things that we could 
we could drop on a, you know, an alien invader. Nothing works. Everything just goes sideways. And literally the way that the heroes win the day is through divine intervention, through a deus machina. And it's, it's very cleverly set up. It's not just a cheat, I guess you could say, but that movie is so good. It's showing that, Hey, maybe human technology and progress has a limit or it's not everything, or it can't ultimately save us. And so these stories are are so good at pointing to this God-shaped hole in our hearts, this, like I said, this vacuum that, that can get filled by really terrible things if God is not the one who is the master of our souls. Even if a science fiction story does not acknowledge the existence of God, if they're agnostic about the role of faith or uh, this idea of a divine moral lawgiver, a good science fiction story will reflect that duality. Humans do amazing things with science versus humans do terrible things with science. I'm actually reminded, I wonder if it's online, an article that I read about, I believe it was in the print version of Newsweek that I saw at an airport. This article is likely aged very, very poorly from 2008 or 2009. Uh, Either way, there was some uh, political upheaval going on at the time, which I didn't get into. But the general thrust of this article, I believe it was a cover story, was, Oh, hurrah, the geeks shall inherit the earth. And it was an over-the-top rhapsody, a hagiography of technocrats. The idea was, oh, look at all of these people coming into government who are, to the author, they reminded him of the best kinds of scientists. The science had finally returned uh, and we were going to get a reliance on these high priests of human knowledge and nothing was going to go wrong if we just placed ourselves under their benevolent rule. There was an entire section of fan art in a news magazine comparing uh, the members of a new presidential administration to the heroes from science fiction uh, franchises, uh, including Star Wars. I think there was a lot of Star Wars. And then they also compared all the villains of this franchise to the outgoing administration. And it was just cheesy. It was was terrible Christian movie, two-dimensional thinking, bad guys, who hate science and despise human knowledge versus good guys who love science and will bring in the age of Aquarius. And that's silly. Um, that's just, uh, that, that's, that's the worst kind of fandom there where you're reducing first a story into uh, a wedge for your political belief system, a, a religion of science, as it were. It was so cringe, and I, I rarely see that article referenced today. And I think if I went back and looked at it now, uh, the cringe will have only gotten worse. But unfortunately, not much has changed now. I mean, again, avoiding politics. Whenever I hear people say, the science says this. First, I think reification fallacy. Uh, The science has no will. The science is not even the science. It is the sciences. Some of them are more science-based than others. You know, social science is definitely softer than engineering and technology. But secondly, the science does not speak with one voice. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there's different scientists with different views. Yes, some views get to be more popular than others, but there are as many human failings and popularity contests and uh, angles and ulterior motives and political influence in the science, just like there is in any form of human culture. This is not to denigrate science. This is not to say it's all fake. 
This is just to say science is done by humans and humans like science fiction are a mix of good common grace and terrible idolatries. You know, the truest thing about all this is the mixed nature of human nature that we have the Imago Dei, but we have total depravity. Uh, we have inherent sin, whatever you want to say. We have a sinful nature that we're born with that we, we sin because we're sinners. I love this line at the end of contact when Ellie Arroway meets her sort of her an image of her father, but it's projected by this alien. And this alien says, talking about humanity, you're, you're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. And, you know, he, again, he's not talking about a certain political party or a certain group of humans or whatever, but about humanity itself. And these are the best kinds of stories. And I'll talk more about contact in a minute about why I think it is so great at what we as the church can do or, or need to do. Because, you know, if you just look at sci-fi and just kind of give it a cursory look, you could come to the conclusion that, oh, you know, the genre is just saying that science will save the day. No, I think more often than not, these stories show how science only amplifies the core problems of humanity. And it points us to you know, a deeper equation that can't be solved by human effort alone. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love science. Like I said at the beginning, I was an engineering major in college. I studied telecommunications, engineering technology. I love technology, engineering, science. Physics was my favorite class in, in calculus in uh, high school. And because, you know, science does give us some amazing things. We, we have an explanation for material processes. You know, we, we don't have to just give into superstitions about how things work. I love this verse in Psalm 111 too, that says the, the Lord's works are great studied by all who delight in them. And Johannes Kepler famously said, I'm studying God's thoughts after him. Science is a great gift to, to mankind, but the problem is mankind. And science, while it can answer things about the physical world, it's faith that gets at the, the meaning of things. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And again, we'll get, that relates to contact, which I'll talk about in a minute. So sci-fi shows this disconnect between what humanity aspires to and what humanity actually does. So that leads to our third point here, which is that the church should terraform science fiction for God's glory. Our approach to sci-fi should be similar to how we do church. At my church, our, our founding pastor had this saying, we don't want to be a church that's in the city, but not making a difference, or a church that's against the city, that's just judgmental, or a church that's of the city, that's conforming to worldly values. But we want to be a church for the city, that it's for the good of the city where God has placed us. And so I think our goal as Christians who are who are reading sci-fi, who are writing sci-fi, talking about sci-fi, it should be similar process of terraforming, although I guess we've never really terraformed a planet, so I can't really say exactly how that works, but it should be to encourage life where it already exists or, or to help it grow or to, or to start life where there's deadness. And so these are the kinds of tools that, that science can't give us, but faith can give us. And in the realm of science fiction, we see where we can use these tools. I mentioned earlier that I think the best science fiction will accurately and warm-heartedly reflect human nature and all of its duality, the awesomeness that we can do and the terrible things that we can do. 
But I think even that statement stops a little short. The best science fiction is going to be a copy of a copy of a copy of a biblical worldview. That's why a lot of people still love the earlier Star Trek series and are a little bit cold toward the newer series because I think they sense that the older series at least gave tribute to a Judeo-Christian worldview of some kind. This is a little bit more explicit in Star Trek, the original series, uh, where you even have this rather uh, uh, awkward, uh, interesting episode where the crew finds a planet that's based on Roman civilization. And then there's a very strong hint at the end that it's going to get its own uh, Jesus of Nazareth story and its own you know, analog to uh, early Christianity in the Roman Empire. Like it, it's a little silly and uh, there's a bit of a wink, wink, see we like religion. We're okay with Christianity. You know, the, similarly, there's a line where they meet Apollo, which the whole story is intended to be about humanity no longer needs the gods. But whether it's by uh, some, you know, more Christian friendly scriptwriter on the writing team or a censor of the network or something, uh, Captain Kirk, uh, uh, it says something like, we have, we have no need for gods. We find the one just fine or something like that. And uh, that's uh, it's a bit half-hearted there, but you can at least tell that someone is trying. Uh, whereas with some newer science fiction, there's no room for God whatsoever. Even if the story explores religion uh, and even has a positive view of religion, classic humanism will have a positive view of religion insofar as religion gives us some uh, good feelings or some good motive power to become better humans. Uh, at least uh, gives a polite nod in the general direction of a Judeo-Christian morality. But the newer stuff, uh, it's kind of mixed in actually with the older stuff too. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of science fiction, uh, even, even Heinlein, uh, even some of those earlier science fiction writers just had a lot of sexual perversion. I'm not sure there's any other way to put it, whether it was uh, kind of wink and nod endorsements of polygamy, uh, or, uh, you know, a hero marrying a younger woman or something like that. Like some of those seeds were in there too. And a lot of that stuff. Uh, comes to full fruition in newer science fiction that is getting sidelined by the modern obsession with identity and uh, what you do sexually. And it doesn't seem to regard human nature as universally understood. What, what is a human? You know, maybe you take Picard's brain or soul out of his body and you put him in a robot body and Hey, it's still Picard. Um, that's a bit of a spoiler for the uh, Star Trek Picard uh, series or the first season of that series, which I enjoyed a lot. But it ends with that really, really strange transhumanist note, which feels very untrek like especially when you have the whole concept of data wanting to be human. Uh, OK, so you've reversed it. Ooh, Picard is now kind of a robot now. Um, what were we saying again then about the inherent value and dignity of human nature? Picard cheated death after the idea of death being a natural part of our human development. That was huge in Star Trek The Next Generation. You know, like, okay, that's not quite Christian. Uh, death is an invader here. We don't like it. Uh, we live for resurrection, not the finality of death. That's a humanist idea, but at least it's a little closer to respecting the limits of humanity. But if we build a machine and cheat death, like that's not a fun, optimistic concept. That is a horror concept. Actually, you are a technological zombie, which Picard, by the way, narrowly averted by saying that Picard in his robot form would still age. I mean, you're not going to keep Patrick Stewart around forever, so you have to build in that escape hatch. But it's still just a little bit awkward 
and 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 belies the fact that I still think the better science fiction will respect the limits of humanity and will be a little bit closer to that biblical conception of human nature. Well, you're doing a great example of what I'm I have in mind with all this, Stephen, which is that you're 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 pressing into the ideas. And you're just kind of inviting yourself into the conversation, whether it's explicitly inviting Christians into it or not. But, you know, so much of this sci-fi, it it involves these very, you know, you mentioned transhumanism. That's a huge topic nowadays. And that's, that's a topic that Christians should enter in the conversation. And so many of these, these discussions are, are even happening ironically, you know, or, or, um, implicitly through a lot of science fiction. Um, a good example of this I think about is the movie 2012. You know, a lot of Christians looked at that and would go, oh, 2012, you know, it just glorified the destruction of all these Christian landmarks. And then it sort of stole the, the whole idea of uh, Noah's Ark. And wow, what a slap in the face to Christians. But, but you look a little deeper and that um, the, the one of the main characters in it, he is, he's, re- he's, influenced by a sci-fi book that no one knows about, which is kind of interesting. But the, the idea that influences him is a Christian ideal, not a secular one. He's, he's very drawn to the idea of self-sacrifice and just the value and dignity of all people. And that's borne out in the movie itself as towards the end, the spoiler alert, but at the end, these political leaders uh, want to leave behind all the laborers that that made these giant arcs, and this one character is like, no, like how how can we just you know just throw all these people away? So where do the you know so where does that value come from? How did he get there? If if we're just destroying Christianity and mocking Christianity, Christianity shows up there maybe unintentionally, but it's like you can't escape it because again we're in God's universe. We're we're not in the Q continuum's universe, and so we can be a part of these discussions, even if they seem to fly in the face of our faith, because people have already started the conversation. We, we can join it and we can show how Christianity is, is the truth that they're looking for and, and maybe not finding. The interesting way I also see this playing out is how sci-fi, it counterintuitively dethrones its own idols. I mentioned Contact a minute ago. So my oldest daughter and I watched Contact last week. She's 14. And man, we had the best discussion about this. First of all, we looked at how you know, there's all these Christian characters in the story. And, but the main character, Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster, is, is the non-Christian. She's the main atheist. And so you could look at it like, oh, it's a, it's a battle of atheists versus Christians. But my daughter's like, wow, that really humanized care people of faith. And I'm like, how did you get there? And she said, well, Ellie comes to understand Christians better at the beginning. She just kind of thinks they're all idiots. And at the end, she's like, huh, maybe they have a point about faith. Maybe you can't always prove everything, you know, hundred percent. And you have to accept some things about that. And then the other thing my daughter pointed out is she's like, wow, the aliens aren't able to answer Ellie's deepest questions about ultimate meaning in life. Uh, you know, that, that's where she says she's, she's searching for these ultimate answers and the aliens tell her, well, you know, we don't know how these interstellar highways came about. We didn't build them and they just help us keep the loneliness at bay. But, you know, we still don't have like an ultimate meaning for life. It just helps us feel not so sad. And my daughter is like, wow. So I guess they're not, (laughs) I guess they're not feeling, you know, that God shaped hole in your heart. And so 
contact, although it, it seems to be kind of worshiping materialism and aliens and all in technology, it just shows how all of that falls apart at some point. So may, and maybe we need faith. Uh, maybe we, we need something else. There's a lot of similar themes in Battlestar Galactica, the, the newer series, uh, Ready Player One, and g- going back to a Star Trek reference, the Borg, or, or even Superman 3, which sort of set the stage for this, the Borg smashed the idol of self-improvement through technology. And, you know, the movie Transcendence with Johnny Depp, that completely upends transhumanism. All of these stories, this is such a wide open door to demonstrate the, the supreme ideas that are found in the gospel, that these movies and books and stories sort of hint at these problems or, hey, maybe this is a solution, maybe not. And I, I think a lot of times, Stephen, I think a lot of people that, that write and publish and, and act and, and produce and direct sci-fi, I don't even think they realize what's, what's going on. Is, but I, I think it's that God's truth is invading the science fiction realm and we just have to kind of go there and sort of point it out. I just do not recognize the existence of Superman three. I'm going <laughs> to make a very salient point here. Like, I mean, that was super deep, so I'm going to go super shallow. I will allow a Star <laughs> Trek three, the search for Spock. I will allow Spider-Man three, but I will not allow Superman three. And by the way, yeah, Superman four, not too keen on that either. Uh, these were fan fiction, ridiculous, cheapo projects, you know, B movies that uh, nearly ruined the reputation of Christopher Lee. So no. No, <laughs> but I'm glad you found some common grace there because I found none. I walked out of it. Oh man, that, that haunted me. That scene where the woman walks into the, or gets kind of grabbed by the machines and then she's turned into like this walking robot zombie. Man, I remember I that part by that. I remember that part, but I also remember Richard Pryor's character falling all the way off a skyscraper <laughs> wearing skis for some reason. <laughs> And uh, even though he fell the same height as Lois Lane would have fallen and needed super rescuing, uh, he was completely unharmed. It was ridiculous. But I do remember that haunting scene. Yes. I mean, it's kind of over the top, you know, uh, B-movie representation of being overtaken by technology. It's uh, it's horrifying. You know, the idea that you could be turned into a machine. And yet now, of course, you have scientists trying uh, this this very same thing. And similarly, Zach, somehow we've gotten through this whole episode without mentioning Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, a, a favorite and fairly still fairly recent uh, t- uh, 2014, I think it was, an amazing science fiction ode to humanism. Uh, and uh, we had a review from Austin Gunderson of Interstellar, I remember, where he just says, like, this is an absolutely religious humanistic movie turned up to 11. And yes, it is. That whoa we had, uh, we talked about earlier, that's there. I mean, Hans Zimmer as the honest trailer said, falls asleep on his organ, except it's, you know, he's using the organ to bring that sense of transcendence. We are in some kind of godless cathedral, uh, and we're going to the boundaries of our understanding of astrophysics. And, and yet even that film, uh, aligns with what you were saying earlier, you have to rely on something outside the universe, which in their case, they get so close to saying that, okay, love is the one thing that can transcend space-time. Like, whoa, now there's, there's a mystic idea, you know, kind of stuck into this story. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very well acted when Anne Hathaway's character says it. And otherwise, it would come across really cheesy. And then by the end, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Matthew McConaughey is saying, you know, we, we weren't brought here by, uh, you know, aliens. 
we we saved ourselves and and that's mm -hmm. that's the big idea humans somehow evolved and saved themselves and uh, you know it's it's a paradox they were only able to save themselves because they'd already saved themselves and you sit there and go whoa not realizing that they have actually hidden the true solution in plain sight there is a creator for the story outside the story world actually transcendent uh, unbound by any of the dimensions in the story three four five or beyond and the creator of the story decided to arrange the plot that way hidden in plain sight the gospel is more like that uh, even if humans could go back in time and save ourselves uh, it would be god the creator of humans in the first place who enabled that to happen which gives the absurdity to some of the more wilder speculative concepts that uh, suppose that, uh, well, there is a problem with how the whole evolution process got started. So maybe the aliens seeded the earth, you know, with ingredients that would lead to life. Well, then where did the aliens come from? Uh, other dimensions slash <laughs> time travel. Yeah, no, now, now you're firmly in the field of religion. Now you have departed any semblance of uh, hard science fiction and you are in the squishy, soft end of the science fiction uh, ball pit. Uh, that, that will not do. Uh, you may as well just recognize that we're dealing with religion here, uh, not science. Dethrone your idols and uh, pursue the, any light that's in science fiction to the creator who set the whole universe uh, in motion in the first place. Yeah, what all this makes me think of is Paul, the apostle in Acts 17, saying, oh, I see you've even built an idol to the unknown God, you know, just to cover all the bases. And then he turns around and says, well, what you uh, worship and proclaim is unknown. I am going to proclaim to you as known, you know, the God that actually walked among you and who who's can't be served by human hands, <laughs> who's created everyone and everything and determined history and time and space. And I, I just love how Paul takes that little nugget of truth that they get to that, oh, maybe there's a God that we just don't know that that's beyond anything that we can imagine. And like you said, that's what interstellar is doing. It's saying, oh, maybe there's these beings that are beyond, you know, the fifth dimension and that, that, that know what's inside a black hole. And that again, it's those kinds of things are, they're not a threat to us is what I'm trying to say. Those are great places where we can enter in and say, what you worship is unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you as known and, and what the truth is. And I think we just have to be bold and go into those conversations. And I think by doing that, we can sort of build this, this true, you know, galactic federation <laughs> among ourselves and as Christians and even with our neighbors that love sci-fi. Um, there's this great line by, uh, Peter Bogosian who's a philosophy professor. He's, uh, he's been in some interesting headlines, but he says, quote, I have no idea why I'm obsessed with science fiction, TV, and movies. I don't know why I have that rather unusual desire. I wish I could tell you that something caused this in me, but I have no idea why, end quote. And he is an atheist. And so it's like, hey, Peter, let me tell you why. <laughs> God has put these thoughts and, and these ideas and these hints all around you and within you. And I'm going to show you what it points to. And, you know, back to the movie contact, I've had so many conversations, Stephen, with people that uh, spiritual conversations I never would have had otherwise as some people very close to me in my life who love that movie for different reasons. We've been able to have great spiritual conversations about it. 
And so it, again, it goes back to the idea that this is a, a shared universe that we can have with our neighbors that can lead to some very interesting places that maybe they didn't even know they were going to get whisked away to. And there's also, let's not forget, there are some awesome Christian authors out there creating original works of sci-fi from a Christian worldview. Yeah, in our show notes, we uh, we should be able to link just straight to the Lorehaven Library's category for science fiction. You know, as we've mentioned, there's a lot of stories that fall on the spectrum in either science fiction or fantasy or both. And so we tried to group those all as fairly as we can. Uh, you'll find uh, many, many, many works represented in there. Maybe not as much as fantasy. And uh, plenty of Christian-made science fiction does tend to be on the softer side uh, because we, I think our authors do tend to be more interested in the people and the ideas than all of the technology and just exactly what kind of propulsion system you would get and what kind of calculations you need in order to get to uh, the nearest uh, solar system. But I've read so many of those titles. We review, of course, for Lorehaven science fiction made by Christian authors all the time. Uh, we will include those links in the show notes. Before we hear from our fantastic fans, we want to hear from you, our listener. How has science fiction helped you? Uh, how has it caused a sense of wonder or a sense of longing? How has it fostered some interesting conversations you've had with others? How have you seen science fiction sort of upend itself sometimes and all, almost disprove its own case and, and give that opening for the gospel and for you know, thoughts of the, the true, you know, interdimensional being that we, that we know by name, send us your thoughts to podcast at lorehaven.com. We would love to know what some of your encounters with science fiction has led to. I would also love to know how you all would answer the question, why do Christians need science fiction? I think in this series, Fiction's Chief End, we've done our best to explore the definitions, the understanding of that word need, because it's, it's actually can be a little bit rightly controversial to say, oh, Christians, you need this. It can lead to legalism. You know, we don't want to be fiction legalists who say, you know, as opposed to Christians who say you don't need fiction. And why just, just study nonfiction? No, we're not going to overcorrect and say, no, you actually need fiction. You need fantasy. You need science fiction. But if we are living in a universe made by God, and if God has given us imagination, and if God has given us the ability to create made-up imaginary other worlds, and if he has endorsed this idea in the Bible, not just fiction, but even fantastical fiction in the Bible and fantastical nonfiction, then that alone starts to build the case that Christians do need this. If we are to become like Jesus, if we are to understand the gospel, if we are to evangelize our neighbors and look forward to a real-life fantastical and science fiction future with King Jesus ruling on new earth and very likely sending his redeemed saints into the cosmos to terraform places for his glory. Science fiction is also then something that we need, I would say, because God has created fiction, the idea of fiction, and God has given us the idea of science. Put those together, you get science fiction. And a lot of science you just can't do unless you fictionalize it first in some way. And so as Christians, even if we're evangelizing, then yeah, we need science fiction because people love it. And we do want to find those touch points and connect with people. So there, there's a cultural missional aspect there. But even if everyone was already saved, we would still need science fiction because we 
are given the task by God to do science as part of the cultural mandate. So we can build a cultural mandate case for us needing science fiction so we can do science and enjoy fiction. And we can build a uh, evangelism, a great commission case for science fiction as well. But I'd love to hear how all of our listeners have uh, discovered this applied in their own lives. Well, we got a note here from David Wright. Uh, after our last episode about do Christians really need fantasy, part of our Fiction's Chief End series, David says, quote, this episode and number 50, Do Christians Really Need Fiction, were both just awesome. I really, really enjoyed the thoughts and insights. This is such a great podcast. Keep up the excellent work, unquote. Thank you so much, David. That's so kind of you. David, that's always super encouraging. Really appreciate it. And then uh, Brittany wrote us about the last episode and says, quote, so I sent this podcast to my pastor, who happens to be my brother-in-law, and asked him when he'd last read anything but nonfiction. He's a huge book lover, or he was in his life before he and his wife had tiny children and started church planning. He said it's been years since he's read any fiction, end quote. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for asking someone that question. That's awesome. I, I hope that gets your, your pastor thinking about, oh, what, what can he read next? And hey, maybe you can look up our Lorehaven Library. See if there's something that might appeal to him and recommend that. We'd love to uh, uh, help you make those kind of connections. But that's awesome that you had that conversation. And uh, I would, would love to hear what, what happens next. Pastors need a Sabbath. That's the one thing about pastors or anybody in a vocational ministry like that is Sabbath is usually not falling on what Christians, most Christians would understand to be the Sabbath. I mean, that's a work day for them. So Fiction is an amazing way to become a better person, to explore humanity, to explore God's gift of imagination while also resting. Would that uh, more pastors were able to find that kind of time, not just to escape from their responsibilities, but to rest from their responsibilities while uh, also enjoying this gift of God. Next on Fantastical Truth, we now conclude the Fiction's Chief End series, at least for now. Who knows? We may circle back and explore the chief end of other genres. But let's jump into some possibly more controversial waters. Uh, very trending right now as we are recording this, because just the other week, actors from the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, years after that series ended, uh, they have enjoined an ongoing effort to expose the very unfortunate onset abuses of that show's creator and geek uh, paragon, Joss Whedon, the creator of Firefly, director of two Avengers movies. Unfortunately, as part of making those movies, uh, he has offended and wounded a lot of people. Meanwhile, uh, after another mob offensive, actress Gina Carano has been fired from her role as Cara Dune in the Star Wars series The Mandalorian. And then literally the day afterwards, she joined a conservative group uh, that says they want her to help them make movies. When actors are fired from fantastical shows and directors are shunned for onset scandals, what is a Christian fan to think about all of this? So we will explore how we as Christian fans might enjoy great stories while also reckoning with the evils of their creators and this very real phenomenon of cancel culture, even as we identify the idols that hide behind the scenes of our favorite stories. Meanwhile, as you're enjoying science fiction, as you are moving into this final frontier by way of stories about spaceships and space exploration, and maybe even some dragons and other monsters that blur the lines of this genre, recognize how science is God's gift. Imagination is God's gift. All of these things do not exist just for good 
awesome sweeping feelings, that whoa sense as we look at the universe. These things exist for the chief end, not more science, not more fiction, not these feelings, but our chief end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever as we continue in this ongoing mission to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>